Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Welcome to Ben Drowski Show. As I speak, it's Friday, July 16th, 2021. The headlines in the Sun-Times, my beloved bright one, home delivered every day. You're welcome, Sun-Times, for being a home subscriber since mm, late 19, no, early 1980s. You're welcome, Sun-Times. Uh, headline uh, in the paper, I'll just pick any old headline. Illinois Dem Party Chair Barred from Fundraising for State Elections. Uh, Rancho Hinton wrote the story. Good story. Probably be talking about it on my uh, show at some point uh, today, later on today. Without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. She's probably the person who edited that story and is probably the reason why it just sounds so good. What a well-written article. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Ramana Hussein. I'm an assistant metro editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. And she's also a regular on the Ben Jarofsky Show and has been since I started this thing back in 2019. All right, Romana, uh, welcome back, Cotter, uh, to the show. And, <laughs> Thanks for um, having me again. Yes, you're a little young, so you don't get that welcome back, Cotter no, reference. No, I, 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 I do. I do. I, I, I know what welcome back, Cotter, is. <laughs> <laughs> Vinny Barbarino. Whoa. Gotta yeah. give her credit Arnold for Horvath. that. Freddie Boom Boom By the Washington way. and okay, Juan so, Esposito. Or, uh, no, Juan Epstein. Juan Epstein. He was the Hillet Puerto Rican Jewish guy. Yes. I give you so much. And, okay, for 10 trivia points, uh, who was the actor who played Cotter? Uh, Gabe Kaplan. Whoa, get her those trivia points. She didn't cheat, ladies and gentlemen. I could see her. You can't see her, but I could see her. She didn't look at her phone. I, I was uh, a kid when the show came on. So, um, you know, I didn't. I was too young to understand that these were remedial students. I just didn't get that part. But I mean, I, I understood it. And then at the end, I was so young. I didn't get the dumb jokes that the Cotter would tell his wife at the end. You know, she'd sit there and listen to jokes he'd made. And I was like, what is what is that? But I don't know. No, I totally remember the show. I'm okay, Generation X. So 
five or six when it came out. But anyway, I have to say this, this is a trans, uh, a tangent within a tangent, and we're going to get to the main stuff, but I have to say this. Everybody who listens to the show knows I'm obsessed with uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Romana teases me about it, and she points out all his failings. And yes, she's right about 90% of the times. So I can't help myself. But he just came out with a, a book, a book version, a novelized version of his movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, which I liked way too much. Seen five times. Yeah, a little desperation there. Uh, and so I, he's been making the rounds of podcasts, not mine, Romano, other far more successful and listened to podcasts. He's not going to deign to come on the Ben Jarofsky show, but I've been listening to him. And he got off uh, when he was um, on the Joe Rogan show. He went on this whole tangent about John Travolta. And the brilliance of John Travolta in Pulp Fiction and how uh, he fought to have John Travolta in his movie and how he had to defy Harvey Weinstein to get John Travolta in the movie. And I wish he had defied Harvey Weinstein or Harvey Weinstein, like, raping Another women. Matter. You know, that would have been nice for him to stay. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but- I agree. I remember, I remember when Pulp Fiction came out, um, John Travolta, we just hadn't seen him for years. And that was what really put you know, John Travolta got kind of, you know, a re-energized career after that. Yeah. And, and absolutely people forgotten about him. And now this is, these are the movies that he made in the eighties were probably ones that you were watching. These are movies that I think you would know about the talking baby, the baby that talked. I don't oh, know if you remember. Oh, I never baby. saw that. Watch. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look who's talking. Yeah. Look. No, that, that was totally dumb. That looked dumb to me. Well, I didn't watch according it. To, uh, I was too cool for that. Yeah, you, at at age ten or whatever, you were too cool for the time. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was watching like, oh, this is funny. Um, <laughs> uh, so, anyway, so uh, as, as Quentin Tarantino tells the story, he was insisting on John Travolta for the role of was it uh, Vincent in Pulp Fiction, and uh, Harvey Weinstein was saying, "He's why are you wasting your time on him? He's washed up. He's through. Nobody cares about him. All he does is those." Uh, bleeping talking baby movies you know harvey's always dropping the f-bomb and uh and so according to quentin tarantino uh, uh so uh weinstein told him you can get anybody you want you get sean penn i get you sean penn uh to play the part of uh vincent and tarantino said i want tarantino uh, i want uh johnny travolta and if you're not agreeable to that, then maybe you're not the person to distribute my movie. Whoa, what a bold move. And he said Weinstein backed off and allowed him to uh, put uh, cast Travolta in the movie. Do you believe that story is true, or do you think QT, Quentin Tarantino, is just fabricating to make himself look good? Go ahead, Romana. I mean, it's definitely possible. It sounds like something that would uh, happen in Hollywood. But at the same time, nobody seemed to defy Harvey Weinstein for anything. Um, it seemed like it for years, but I think it's a possibility. You always hear about these stories where somebody wanted to cast this one person and they had to fight really hard to get them in there. And, you know, the studio execs were like, no, I don't think this person's right. And then, you know, the movie comes out and it becomes history. And then you hear about like, you know, roles that people turned down, you know, because they thought the movie sounded stupid and then the movie turned out to be a hit. And of course there's like, it's vice versa where the movie's a bomb. Like everybody thinks this person's going to be like the best and carry the movie. Sometimes you hear about an actor and everybody's like, this is going to be the next big name. And you see them in like two movies and they kind of fizzle out. So I think it's a possibility. I don't know. You, you, you defend Quentin more than I do. So you probably believe it. So I think, I think, I, I think I it's actually, a possibility. I, I actually don't believe it. 
You don't? Because I, I would just no. think that at that time, John Travolta was just not marketable, you know? I, you know, no, I believe that Harvey Weinstein. I believe that Harvey Weinstein was uh, dubious about casting Travolta, and I believe so you, that Tarantino. Oh, I don't believe Tarantino, Tarantino said, said oh, you can take your movie elsewhere. I, yeah, I, I, I agree don't believe he that. said yeah. that to Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I do not believe yeah, he said it. that to Harvey Weinstein. I think that's something he's yeah. saying now. He said, you know, it's, especially it's sort of like it me. It was his first movie after Pulp, I mean, after um, Reservoir Dogs. So, yeah, I could see that because it was like, you know, it was the like Reservoir Dogs was a small movie, but it made it big and, you know, it was an indie hit. And so, yeah, this was his blockbuster. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that part. Like that part might have been fibbed. Exaggerated. Yeah, a little. or exaggerated. Excellent. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say something else before we move on. Uh, yes, I uh, really a uh, big fan of Quentin Tarantino movies, and yes, you tease me about it, uh, and justifiably so. But I'm going to make a prediction here: Quentin Tarantino is going to do something really embarrassing, or say something embarrassing, and he's going to like show some MAGA proclivities. I predict this. I see this coming, and you are going to be making fun of me so much. I'm just getting it out of the way up front. And I don't know what my defense will be when he says something really. I feel he's heading in that direction, Romana. I feel Quentin Tarantino is heading toward MAGA country. Go ahead. He already says a lot of dumb things. And just given his foot fetish, a lot of people have written about it and um, make fun of him. And, you know, there's this uh, Twitter account that I follow. It's called um, Men Writing Women. And it basically takes like scripts and books and takes parts of where male authors describe women and they're just so ridiculous but anyway recently i saw um uh, one of the characters from once upon a time in hollywood um who was in the car with brad pitt and it, the the script was on this uh on this twitter account and it just was so ridiculous describing this young woman and then it talks about her feet and all this stuff, and it it was it was it was pretty hilarious. But I, w- I was thinking about you and how your love for Quentin Tarantino when I saw it, because basically it's a, it's, a, it's this account where they people are making fun of men and how they don't know how to describe women or describe them as these like you know, you know they, they describe them in these ridiculous terms that are just so crazy. So the script was revealed on there, and everybody was everybody was making fun of Quentin Tarantino on there. Obviously, mostly women followed this account, so. If by some chance, which is exceedingly unlikely, I think there's a greater chance that the Cubs win the World Series. Uh, they already did. This, no, the World Series this year. Okay, Cub oh, fans okay. are still talking about 2016, <laughs> guys. It was five years ago. Your team's not doing so well right now, um, and you're run by like probably the most disgusting ownership in baseball. Just saying, Cubs fans. But anyway. Um, if by uh, some chance Quentin Tarantino agrees to come on uh, this show, the Ben Jarofsky show, I will definitely reach out to you to be uh, a co-host to ask him questions about his foot finish. Uh, me, th- and me I know it, that scene very Yes, Marina. Oh, who, by the way, loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She loved Marina O'Donnell, the outstanding obituary writer for the Chicago Sun-Times. That woman should win a Pulitzer. I'm just saying, ladies and gentlemen. Agreed. Nobody writes obituaries. Uh, like Marino. All right, let's move on to more important things than Quentin Tarantino, though. Sometimes I think Quentin Tarantino says it all. Uh, critical race theory and Megyn Kelly, they're sort of paired in my mind. You introduced me to the Megyn Kelly controversy. Ramana, when you mentioned it today in our pre-show, I hadn't 
followed it. Megyn Kelly, of course, Fox personality, former Fox personality, I should say, uh, gave an interview, did an interview, and she totally minimized what went down at the Capitol. Uh, sometimes I don't uh, understand what goes on in the minds of right-wingers. Uh, but uh, anyway, and then at the same time, uh, there's this, the right is using critical race theory to scare the hell out of white people. And uh, your dear friend Natalie Moore wrote an excellent column about this in today's Sun-Times. So shout out to Natalie and uh, I was the bright one editorial. I are awful, but uh, some of their uh, guest columnists in this case, Natalie Moore, outstanding job. So thank you sometimes for giving some space to uh, Natalie Moore. Uh, to talk a little bit about uh, critical race theory and how you see it, and more to the point, uh, Ramana, how you see it's being used as a political tool. Yeah, first of all, I wanted to give a shout out to Natalie Moore, too. Um, I read a column, and I can um, openly say that I agree with her column. Um, critical race theory is basically... Um, just talk, it's basically in a nutshell talking about, or it's like a theory about how there's systematic racism in this country and how that is, that is embedded into a lot of our laws, uh, our societal norms. And it's, you know, people are talking about how we need to talk about this more after the George Floyd murders, you know, for some reason that shooting created this shift where people are starting to examine a lot of things that we should have been examining for years. And, um, you know, Natalie points out that, you know, her child has all these, you know, her five-year-old daughter, I believe, or six-year-old daughter, sorry if I'm um, wrong on the age, has um, five, five, uh, has uh, books about um, the touch upon her identity and touch upon race. And, you know, they're books that kids should be reading, all kids, regardless of who they are. And so critical race theory is being like batted around by the right wing, you know, saying that, oh, this is just, you know, more education for our kids. They don't want kids to learn about racism, basically. They don't want kids to know about how bad slavery was and how that the legacy of slavery and the legacy of racism still kind of lingers today. They don't want people. And their, their whole argument is they don't want white kids to feel bad. I can say, I mean, I went, I, when I was a little kid, it's, it's been a while. It's, you know, I, I was raised in the seventies and eighties and I can tell you that, um, white kids never felt bad about themselves. Um, they made us, they made people of color, they made kids who were people, you know, kids who were people of color feel bad about themselves because of their color. And so I don't know how things are today. Um, obviously the conversations are a little different. I don't know what it's like to um, be a person of color or a child of color today, but I can tell you white kids are very proud of being white and they made, they let you know that you're inferior if you look different. And that's just the way the structure was in school when we were growing up. Um, one of the funny things is like my mom is like, has even picked up on how like, <laughs> You know, the, the cultural, you know, discussions have changed a lot and people now talk about white people and they call white people out. And my mom, my mom thinks it's excessive. She goes, oh, now people are going too hard on white people. And I have to say that my mom is someone out of my entire like immediate family. She's the only one who barely spends time in white spaces. So I'm like, yeah, it's easy for you to say you just hang out with your Indian friends. And, you know, you haven't have to hang out with like, you know, rooms of people who are just white and you're the only South Asian or you're the only person of color in a room. I go, you don't know what it's like. So I go, they deserve everything that they're getting right now. So um, I think, I think, no, nobody wants to, I mean, in all fairness, nobody wants to make white people 
or white children feel bad, but they want people to think about things and why things are the way they are. And if you ask me, I don't think white people feel bad enough. Just being someone who, you know, is still raised around um, and it still kind of lives in these white spaces. I'm the one that has to code switch every time I go into a white space. White people never learn how to mingle in like other, you know, in the company of other people. Every time I talk to a white person and they go to a party where they're the only white person, they always have to brag about it. Like, oh, God, I was the only white person there. And then I, I kind of feel like <laughs> rolling my eyes. And they're like just bragging about it. Like they're so cool. And like, you know, it was so weird. And then I'm like, well, don't you think my life has been weird? I mean, I've had to, you know, I grew up in the 70s. There weren't, it wasn't cool to be Indian at the time. Um, people made fun of us. So I, I know what it's like to be different. I know what it's like to be the only person of color in a room. And I've had to learn how to adapt to that. So I don't understand why learning about racism, and we all did learn about racism as kids, but did we really discuss it? We probably spent like a day or two. We talked about slavery, but did we really go into how bad it was? I don't think we did. And Natalie talks about it in her essay, and Natalie's a few years younger than me, but she talked about her school, and I don't know where she went to school, but she said that... Um, she said that her teachers or in their textbooks, they said that, you know, slaves were only beaten if they tried to run away. And then she said they were depicted as being really happy in, in their, w with their lives. And I, I think that's true. That's how it was. It was like, yeah, you know, there was like, they were happy to sit there and do all this work. The one thing I do remember as a kid watching was Roots. My parents were really into it. So I remember every Saturday when that miniseries came on. So I felt like that like, that kind of opened my eyes to it. Like I feel like I learned more about slavery on TV as a kid than I did actually in the classroom because that at that age I was really young and I'm not, you know, but I don't think it's I don't, I don't think you're too young to ever learn about the things that we've done wrong in this country. And that's one of the things I think people need to learn and I think that's some the discussions that's kind of changing. The dialogue when I was a kid was that everything the United States do, does is wonderful. We're always right. Everything we do is moral and everybody else is wrong, but we don't realize that we've done a lot of wrong in the past too. And slavery is one of the biggest ills of this country. So I don't know. I just think it's, I just think it's crazy that people don't want their kids to learn about this. Like they want to live in this world where, you know, white privilege and white supremacy is the best thing. So I, it, it's all part of like what's happening in this country. I mean, Donald Trump was elected for a reason because you know, there's all these people who are saying that, oh, I'm not racist, but, you know, they like Donald Trump. But it's like at the bottom of it, at the heart of it, in their in their soul, there's got to be something where they want to hold on to that white privilege and the white supremacy. So I just think this is all part of the cultural shift in this country or the cultural discussion in this country where people just want white supremacy and white privilege to always exist. Uh, by the way, that was a great riff. Uh, and you, you said so many things that I took notes on. And so let me go back to, uh, to one thing you said early on in the, in the middle of the riff. You talked about code switching. So explain yeah. what code switching is and how it works in, uh, in your life. Well, code switching is, um, you know, we do, I mean, I'm not saying that, I think I'm basically like, for example, I'm getting, I'm pretty much who I am in most crowds, but I do change the way I am when I'm in a bunch of in a group of people who are just white. You have to talk about the things they care about. You have to talk about the things, you know, you change the way you talk a little. 
And I do, you know, when I was younger, I felt it more like when I was with my South Asian friends or my Muslim friends, like, we just be a lot more loose. And then, you know, a lot more loose, we'd laugh more. And then when I was with a bunch of white kids, um, I felt like I was more subdued. I, I, I look back at me being a child, I don't know, know if I do that anymore. But I still feel like I changed if I'm in a group of people that are just white or who are just white. I do try, I do change a little. There's certain things I can't talk about. Like, you know, they're not going to get certain jokes. You know, you have to make jokes about, you know, jokes that they understand. And so it's like, you learn how to, you, you, I think most people of color know how white culture works because that's all we saw. You know, I, I tell my husband, Mick all the time, he always talks about the movies that we saw. And I'm like, most of the mainstream movies I saw all, everybody was white. The entire movie was white. You know, it's like, you know, if there was a person of color, they were the punchline. You know, I love John Hughes movies, but, you know, six, um, 16 Candles was one of my favorite movies. But Long Duck Wong, that character, the Asian character, he was like the punchline and everybody just laughed at it. And I probably did, too. So it's like that's we, we know what white culture is. And so we have to adapt and change the way we are when we're in these mostly white spaces. And I never I, I just don't see the effort on behalf of white people when they go into crowds of rooms, you know, but there are not people of color to try to understand other people. I think they just are who they are because they have that privilege of everybody else knowing about who they are, but them not knowing about other people. So I'm just saying that it doesn't hurt to learn about other people and how this country, its policies have affected others. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of these people who are pushing back on critical race theory is like, they don't want to be, ever be wrong. They always want to be seen as the greatest, you know, in the 1950s America where, you know, all, or, you know, even seventies or eighties America where, you know, and even today where, you know, the, the majority of people are white and every, everything that white does, that is done by white people is correct. And, you know, I've had that done seen all my life with assimilation and stuff. So I don't know. I just think it's crazy that people don't want to learn about the history of this country or want to whitewash it, literally. Uh, literally. Okay, so now there's a, uh, a photograph that accompanies uh, Nally Moore's essay in The Bright One and the Sun-Times. Uh, and it's it was not chosen to uh, illustrate the point that Natalie Moore was making. Uh, I don't know why they chose it. I I cannot speak for the people who run the editorial page of the Sun-Times. But uh, the photo is of a June 12th rally in Virginia against, quote-unquote, critical race theory. They had a rally against critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't don't get me. But anyway, the sign in the background is what I want to call attention to and get your, your thoughts to it. Education, not indoctrination. Stop critical race theory now. So if I were to defend and that's in quotes, the point of view of the MAGA hat people who are passing laws throughout the country that are banning. Just let's talk about that for a cult. Hey, I thought you guys were uh, against uh, cancel culture. I thought you guys were for liberty and free of speech. I'm just saying, MAGA, get your act together. Uh, but anyway, they say the reason why they're banning it is because it's indoctrination. So if you teach uh, young children that uh, slave owners uh, whipped their slaves, that's indoctrination because you're making white people feel bad. I mean, kid, you didn't whip the slave. <laughs> Whatever. I know, it, I know. Uh, and it's, it's like, yeah. I, just, I just find it so crazy because it's like, as a person of color, as someone who's Muslim, 
I've been, I've been made to feel bad all the time. Like when we, okay, you, Ben, you know, we took a vacation, a family vacation or my whole, my side of the family went on vacation. So when we were coming up, coming, leaving the airport in Montana, my nephew, who's 20 and his brother, who's 13 were stopped in when we're doing our check, you know, our handbag, you know, checks. And they started, they took my 20 year old nephew's like protein and they started like examining it and they put like all these like, you know, machines on it. And then they took his 13 year old brother who I think they didn't believe was 13 because he's shot up and he's tall. So he had no ID on him. And then they took his, I put my trail mix in his handbag because I couldn't fit it in my handbag. Then they started taking out his trail mix and examining the trail mix. So I never see a white kid getting pulled out of line and getting, having their like snacks examined. So you know, people, children of color are always made to, you know, made to feel bad. I mean, there's black kids getting shot. And I don't want to like even go on that level. There's a, you know, black kids are being shot for being black kids. So people of color are made to feel bad all the time. And especially African Americans. So I just think it's crazy that like, oh, you know, and I'm not saying no white kid has ever felt bad in their life. But as a group, white kids are never singled out for being white, really. Unless maybe, I don't know, they probably, they're probably made fun of for being white, but I'm just saying like this whole, like, oh, let's not make white kids feel guilty or bad. You do that to other kids all the time because of who they are. But, but get uh, the, what I want, uh, want to ask you about is the, the distinction between indoctrination and education. Oh, and indoctrination, so, they think, they think it's like you're brainwashing them, but it's actual education. Isn't it education to tell the kids that this is exactly what happened? with slavery and not that, you know, all these slaves are excited and were never whipped. So that's, isn't that indoctrination where you're making up lies and brainwashing people to believe that slavery was this like excellent or wasn't as bad as we thought it was. It wasn't as bad as we thought it was. And, uh, you know, we gave, we gave all these black people from Africa better lives by coming, coming overseas. So that's indoctrination. The thing is like education is teaching people and the, and it's not a lie. If anybody has learned anything about slavery, it's not a lie to say that it was a horrible thing. More than well, horrible. One, one thing I've learned uh, about the right uh, in, the, in the age of Trump uh, is that uh, they've become masters of the art, and I have art in quotes, of pro, uh, what do they call it, projection. So they take things they do and project it onto their opponents and make it seem like their opponents are doing it. And, and Donnie Trump does it all the time, he, instinctively. And I believe this is what's happening here. So if you're trying to teach a unit about uh, race relations in our country or the history of race in our country, and uh, you don't want, you don't want to show how this country like grew out of these racist principles, these racist attitudes toward uh, black people. In particular, let's just be honest, black people. And yes, black that people. slavery black was embedded. Yeah, just forget people of color. That's like a millennial term, just black people. And um, so it's like if you, don't, if you can't deal with that, what they do is they call it indoctrination. They... Like what they're doing is indoctrinating their followers into believing that there is no racism or racial hatred at the root of America's development. 
Uh, and so that anybody who says contrary is indoctrinating you. So they they accuse the other people of doing what they're doing. I got to give them credit. I mean, on one level, it's it's completely dishonest. You know, it's totally, I mean, it's totally BS. And if they were honest, well, could you imagine having a drink with some MAGA person who was just let, let loose go yeah we're just making this shit up as we go along these dummies fall for it i mean exactly so it's that I, I they are smart they are smart and do i mean smart in quotes in 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 getting everybody riled up and you know turning you know just kind of playing with the language and you know their pr campaign is very successful i guess that's 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 what i would have to say but and this is where it ties in with Megyn Kelly. And I got to thank you for alerting me to Megyn Kelly. As everybody knows, if you want to keep me ignorant about something, put it on Twitter. Uh, and uh, so uh, Ramana is one of the many people in my life who alerts me to what's going on in Twitter. So this was a Twitter storm that I missed. Uh, Megyn Kelly uh, did an interview with some MAGA person. Uh, and they were all opining how the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection, takeover, riot, whatever you want to call it, Trump that um, uh, emerged from the Trump rally at the Capitol was overblown by the media. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you're saying that slavery is exaggerated. Yet the badness of slavery is exaggerated. On one hand, you're going, the badness of slavery is exaggerated. And the only Black people who got whipped were those who ran away. Like, for instance, wait, let's just think about that for a moment. So it's okay to whip them if they run away? It seems like that's what's embedded. And, well, you know, they only got whipped if they ran away. Oh, well, that, uh, that understands that he's being held against his will. He runs away for freedom, and then he's whipped. Well, Ben, don't you? Come on. You can't just run away. Oh. So they're saying that's exaggerated, you know, the horrors. And then, but somehow... <laughs> Somehow or other, you get to the insurrection, and it's all good, guys. Help me with this, Ramana. What's going on with Megyn Kelly's brain that she says something so stupid? Well, we all know it's it's hypocrisy at its finest. Because if this was any other group that wasn't a bunch of white people just standing on the lawn and throwing a couple things, uh, you know, even if they even if nobody even ran inside the Capitol building and they were not people that look like the people the day of January 6th, it would have been, the right would have been still talking about it. And, you know, depending on who it was, you know, these people are anti-American and, you know, the terrorists, but because they were MAGA people and mostly a group of white people, the right is suddenly saying the media exaggerated. Now I've never seen a group of people infiltrate the Capitol building in my life. Um, you know, and do you think that's normal? Um, you know, and, and, and it's really funny because Megan Kelly, you know, for years she's been like, just, you know, I, I don't agree with any, I, I feel bad that she was sexually harassed and I feel bad that Donald Trump went after her, but she was kind of put on this pedestal for a long time. Like she was this martyr, but she's kind of been problematic for me for a long time. You know, she's, She's, on, she's kind of said a lot of crazy things, like especially when it comes to race. And so I was not surprised that Megyn Kelly was saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. And 
during the podcast she had, this was a podcast that she has, and she was talking to this woman who was at the um, Capitol riots. And this woman described the Capitol riots as a chill place to be. And, uh, you know, they, neither of them talked about the police officers that, that died as a result or, you know, any of the, any of the, the violence that happened there. So I think Megyn Kelly might have said something like, well, not everything was, you know, peaceful. And I think the woman pushed back. But Megyn Kelly seemed to be agreeing with the woman for most of the interview. That's what it seemed like from what I read. Um, I, 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 I just call it hypocrisy. What else could it be? Double standards and hypocrisy. That's all I can say. And I don't know why Meg, I don't know why, I don't know why Megyn Kelly is like, even given the time of day at this point, but it, 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 I, I feel like she gets too much attention personally. Well, you say something outrageous. I mean, I'm yeah, really... no, I, what I mean is like, you know, for the longest time she was seen as this legit journalist, you know, Oh, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, she's never asked tough questions, but there was this time where a lot of people and a lot of people on the left included were acting like she was like so wonderful. And, you know, it's like, cause Donald Trump like went after her. But she's never been that wonderful in the past of the things. All right, I just one more time. I'm going to. I, this is a constant on the Ben Jarofsky show in conversation with Ramon of saying, uh, distinguish between liberals and lefties. Sorry, uh, I do not know one lefty in the world who's ever had a nice thing to say about Megyn Kelly. And I know a ton of lefties. Okay, You're talking liberals. about squishy liberals, okay? Okay, squishy liberals. <laughs> squishy that, liberals. Okay, I, I will. I will. There is there is a difference between liberals and lefties. I agree. Thank you. God. All right. But you know what, Ramana? Think, listening to this conversation, and I wrote this, I just, the theme, this is what I was trying to say, and I was really inarticulate. The, the theme that links uh, what uh, Natalie talked about in her column today and what Megyn Kelly said is that white people, you, you just n- never do anything wrong, white people. So, for instance, a slave owner... Never. Come on. He only whipped the slave. Quit worrying about when the slave ran away. White people overtake the Capitol with their Trump flags, are whacking cops over the heads with a hockey stick. Just saying that, Megyn Kelly. You know, who brings a hockey stick to a rally? And, oh, come on. It was, stop being exaggerated. I'm like, so wait, you, you just, is that it? We're not, it's just like, don't criticize white people weak in America, exactly. or maybe month or I, year, I, I you think, know, I, I think it's I think it's don't criticize white people forever in America. That's just that's just <laughs> the theme of America. That's the theme of the United States, and it still exists today. Don't criticize anybody white as a group. White people have it all figured out. They're teaching the rest of us how to be civilized, and the rest of us are just you know we need we need you know this is this is why we justify war. That's just, this is how war is justified in, in a lot of parts of the world, like the United States. Like, we're bringing democracy. And, you know, we're is usually in the form of a white man, but it's like a lot of black people and Latino people and, you know, poor white people doing the dirty work. But that's how it's always presented. Like, we're bringing the American way of life to the other people. And the American way of life, let's admit it, it usually means a white way of life. I think that's just that 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 so it's like the theme of the United States. I think. Yeah. Come come on, Megan. Not just this week, Ben. 
Yeah, not to, no. I know it's. I know. It's I like know. I'm <laughs> Millennial. I'm it's like millennium. Uh, yeah. It's white people millennium uh, in the United States. No, it's just amazing though. And I read Natalie Moore. And Natalie, a shout out to Natalie Moore. All right, I got to give a shout out to the Bright One editorial. Good job, guys, for running Natalie Moore. Now let's hire her to write some of your editorials. All right, uh, let's move on from that uh, that uh, unwarranted attack on the editorials. Sometimes it's unnecessary. Let's discuss. Uh, the the uh, summer of soul uh more to the point people shooting rockets into space summer soul is a movie uh which i t- i saw last weekend i actually saw it in a movie theater ramana you can watch it on hulu and i know you and make are probably going to watch it on hulu but you could it's at the uh, the smart people movie theater over at clark and diversity so better sound and everything my wife and i wanted to see it uh, it's a great flick. I urge everybody to run to walk. If you love 60s music, it's about the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969. Uh, but the part, there's so many things I loved about it, but the part I was uh, riffing on in my column, or my newsletter for the reader, was they um, they did a little riff on man walking on the moon because the Harlem Cultural Festival took place in the summer of 69, before Ramana was born, I might add. Uh, and, uh, and that was right in, in the middle of the cultural festival, it took place over three months, July 20th, man walked on the moon. And they asked all these concert goers at the Harlem Cultural Festival what they thought about it. And to a T, they were like, what's the big deal? We can't eat, you know, there's poverty. And I remember uh, like little old me thinking the same thing because I was never into rockets and stuff anyway. You know, I was into sports and politics and pizza, which is pretty much what I'm into today. And I'm like, yeah, what is the big, who cares about the freaking moon? I was never a kid who liked science fiction. So I was with them, but I never, I felt all alone. There was nobody else saying that. Everybody was like, if you talk to a baby boomer, Romana, and um, I know you've been known to talk to a few of them from time to time, and, and they start reminiscing about the summer of 69. They're like, I remember where I was. When Neil Armstrong took that first step, I'm like, who cares? You know, where I remember where I was when the Cubs blew their 13 game lead. Anyway, I love that little moment in the movie where they just do that little tangent about nobody caring about man on the moon. Uh, and then what it links to is we have all these rich guys spending untold gazillions of their fortune, which they got by just like holding on a huge market share, violation of all antitrust, a tangent there, uh, to to go up in space. It's sometimes, Ramana, I don't think I'm ready for the world. I'm like really out of things. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I couldn't care less about going up in space. I don't understand why Jeff Bezos is wasting all that money of his. Why, you know, why don't you give your workers a raise instead of spending all that money that you've hoarded going in space. Please help me with this on every step of the way. First of all, am I wrong not to care about man going into the moon in 1969? Go ahead, Romana. I did, I did read your column right before the show started. I have to say I really enjoyed it, um, especially the part where you said you like Sha-na-na. Um, I, <laughs> I, 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 I know a little about Sha-na-na. I remember one time me and my younger sister were watching a crime series and Shanana was mentioned and my younger sister was born in 1980 and she's like who the hell is that and I was telling her I'm like I don't know some random 60s or 70s band I don't know them that well either but I remember them 
So anyway, I, I had, I chuckled when I saw that, but I did, I did really, the part about where you talked about the man on the moon, that really kind of resonated with me too, because as a young kid, we we're talking about slavery and how we barely talked about it. But Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, I don't know how many times I've heard about that from teachers, how many times in pop culture references, you know, the wonder years. I remember that episode where that like, you know, everything, you know, their, you know, their life is going around and all of a sudden, you know, so like for me, it was like, I know I, I'm sorry, I'm keeping on ripping on white people, but that's all the image I saw, like a bunch of like white kids, white parents sitting around the TV and watching Neil Armstrong. And I, when I was reading your column, I was thinking and I'm talk, hearing about these people all at this concert, none of them cared. And it's true. I never really saw any images of black people sitting around a TV and watching Neil Armstrong land on the moon. So it, it's a really good point. I mean, there was a divide and, and it was ingrained in my head. And I'm not saying that, you know, the accomplishments of, you know, the United States sending someone to the moon is something that we should just poo poo. It's great. But this, there was kind of one of those things where like, oh, you should be so proud. And, you know, everybody should be crying when you see these images. And I've, I've, I've like, you know, I'm an Indian kid, and I saw it over and over and over and over again. Like it was kind of pounded into my head. So I do appreciate like, I, you know, I, I am going to watch the documentary tonight, I think, or this weekend. And I never heard about this concert series. Woodstock, on the other hand, I saw images of over and over and over and over again. I remember when it was the 25th anniversary, like I had a Pepsi can that said the 90, it was like 1994 and it was like anniversary of Woodstock. And I like was into the woods. I was into Woodstock. You know, I'm like, oh, I wish I was there. And I would have been rolling around in the mud. And then I'm like, the older I got, I was like, that is so gross. I would not want to roll around in the mud with those people. <laughs> and I was like, I don't uh, want to be I am not going into Woodstock. So no way. it's really funny. It's I, I, I really like your column. It resonated with me a lot. And it kind of, I think it touches upon a lot about what things that we're supposed to be like all enamored about and one things we're not. And again, like I said, landing on the moon is great. But there's so many other things that we've done or... Why can't we pay it when we're talking about critical race theory? Okay, we landed on the moon. That's something that we learn about, and that's great. But why can't we learn about slavery? And you know what I mean? So I, I, I think that's, I, I think it was great the way you expressed it. And, you know, going to the, going to the moon, I, I'm always confused about it, whether it was the moon or space. And Richard Branson, you know, who owns Atlantic, or Virgin Atlantic, right? Or Virgin, you know, the airline company or whatever he owns. He's a billionaire. That's the only kind of people that can go into space. Uh, so he went into space successfully, and Jeff Bezos wants to do it again. And I, I think it's fine if that's what they want to do, if that's what they want to spend their money with. But it feels like it's more of a competition, like which billionaire can do it first. Like, do how come billionaires are so into going into space all of a sudden? Like, it's just I feel like it's a competition thing. I'm pro I probably spend money on clothes and shoes more than a lot of other people would spend. So I can't tell them how to spend their money, but I, I, I don't know if I, if I had that much money, I don't know if that's what I would prioritize, but yeah, I feel like it's just more of a publicity stunt. like who, which rich guy, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or Richard Branson can go on the moon. And I think Richard Branson wants to own a bunch of hotels like on the moon. And I'm like, why do you have to even like, why do you have to colonize the moon at this point? Just leave the moon alone. <laughs> I mean, so it's just kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of like these rich guys flexing more than, I don't know. I mean, maybe Richard Branson apparently was really into space as a kid. I was reading an article 
from the Atlantic and the opening line said that he was hung over when uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, but it touched him a lot. So he was a little different than you, Ben. He was more touched by it than you were. So I don't know. It's fine. It's a hobby, but I, I think it's a competition thing. You could write a book about the differences between me and Richard Branson. I mean, just <laughs> yeah, I know. the, the I bank book be alone. A, uh, I think it would be a seven-part series. Uh, I, um, there's this uh, a poem. It's like a po song poem, poem song. It's not in the movie, but it's by a, 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 a musician who died. He got hooked on heroin. Gil Scott Heron is his name. Everybody's forgotten him pretty much, but he's really talented. Anyway, it's called Whitey on the Moon. I urge you to listen to it sometime. Bef before you, or after you see the movie, uh, Google it and, or go to um, YouTube and watch it. Uh, Whitey on the what Moon. What is it called? It's just some, Whitey, W-H-I-T-E-Y. Oh, Whitey, Whitey on the okay. Moon. Yeah, and it's okay. by Gil Scott Heron, and it so tells it like it is. But I, I just was just—it's just who you are as a kid, and yeah, you know, we're all obviously you know different. And uh, when you're 13, kids—it's a kind of a cool age in a lot of ways. You were talking about your 13-year-old uh, nephew, and uh, I could just imagine what that kid is into, and it's his own little world that he, you know, you're into. And uh, I go my room and listen to my baseball games and my basketball games, you know, and following politics and just like the moon, who cares? Why are you guys talking about them? So anyway, I, by the way, and then in the movie, they got comp, red Fox does a bit about it. He's hilarious. Mom's Mabley does a bit about it. So that just little moment alone made the movie for me. And plus the music, TV wonder and, Nina Simone and Sly and the Family. So that's a great flick. I know you're going to love it and Mick will love it too. Let's move to the Romana recommendation. Uh, so obviously you're going to watch um, Summer of Soul tonight. You have you saw before I did, I finally caught up to you, Lapine. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, neither one of us speak French. Man, I love that show. What a great caper uh, show. Netflix, it's a French-made sort of comedy uh, suspense, drama, thriller, drama, caper. Omar Sy is brilliant as in the lead. And um, your thoughts on Lupine or Lupine or whatever, however, the L-U-P-I-N, however they pronounce it. Lupine. I don't know. I thought it was really good. I, I, I liked it. I know there was some criticism about it in terms of like um, there was a lack of um, women who are black in the movie. And I understood that. Um, I liked some of the, I guess, I feel like it was more, I think there was like, it's like a fun movie, but there's definitely some layers about race and class in, in, in the um, entire show. So I liked it. I, overall, I liked it. I can understand some of the criticism, but I thought it was really fun. I've, I've never wanted to go to Paris, but I can tell you that that, that show and um, call my agent kind of made me want to go to Paris because that was the one that's always been the one city like where I thought like oh god that's where was, I'm just gonna see a bunch of Americans and I just never seemed that interested because if I just thought I was being stereotypical gonna go to the front seemed really annoying but it's it there's a lot of different cultures in France and I think the shows are trying to are, are kind of touching upon that these days these French shows that we're watching so um I don't know it's pretty interesting I know there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment but which kind of pissed me off too about Paris but in France but now I kind of want to go after watching those two shows um I like Lupin a lot a lot I mean I I watched it I remember I told you when it landed and I'm like oh 
they're 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 already here and I, I binge watched it I think that weekend I watched like two episodes a day and it was only five I was kind of bummed and I'm wondering if they're gonna have another season I think they are having another season uh, folks I urge you to watch it it's it's a caper flick and you're right the the shots of Paris uh well man it looks so beautiful I don't go to Paris you're right those long, big boulevards and the uh the the scenes along the Seine it's just a uh it's very well made uh, and yeah, just a little suggestion of the racial overtones, just uh, because the lead actor is a black man. And you're right. There's no black women in in the show. His I don't want to give it too much away, but his wife in the uh, or the mother of his child uh, is um, a white woman who is, by the way, in the swimming pool. I don't know if we talked about that or there's a movie, The Swimming Pool, which came out uh, in the uh, oh, early I know, I've 80s. heard of, I've heard of it, but. 90s it's excellent 90s. yeah i or it's, it's a tribute to by the way there's some hitchcockian moments uh in lupine or lupine or whatever it is lupin i mean y- y- these guys these <laughs> mo- movie makers they just every now and then they go okay we're gonna do a hitchcock scene we're gonna give a tribute to the greatest uh it takes place in an orchestra hall uh that's all i'm gonna say uh and uh it, at the end of the show and it's really cool uh we'll close with no sudden moves I love this flick. Uh, it's it's the kind of movie I watched as a kid all the time. Don Cheadle, I'll pretty watch, much watch any Don Cheadle movie. I just think he's excellent. Yeah, he's a, he's a great like, actor. He's a great actor. Everybody in there was what, what, there. There was a pretty good cast in there. What which what, what network? I can't remember. I just no. Which network is it on? I can't remember. I was going to say Netflix, but I don't think uh, it was Netflix. HBO Max. HBO. All right, so. Uh, it tells the story of mobsters, but it also, I thought, uh, Romana had a little political overtone about how cities uh, like Detroit, it takes place in Detroit, uh, were destroyed by capitalism, essentially. Uh, that's my sense of it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I liked it. Um, I thought it was I thought it was really well made. Um, the cast is great. Benicio Del Toro's in it. Brendan Fraser, who hasn't been in a movie in a long time. Ray Liotta. Um, and then there's a cameo of can I say who it is because they don't they don't he's not billed Matt da- Matt Damon shows up <laughs> pops out of nowhere um, Don Cheadle is excellent uh, I I thought it was very well made I I did make a comment about how it was like the Scorsese, the latest Scorsese movie where everybody looks really old but um, all the actors are, Don Cheadle didn't because black don't crack. Sorry, I say that, and it's it's true. There's also one for Asians. Asians don't reason. So um, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought he did a great job. So I'm not. I was just commenting on how like the male actors were like super old. Like Ray Liotta, Liotta's wife is like probably 31 in real life, and he's probably pushing 70s. So that kind of that kind of just kind of annoyed me. You know, it's like how come like the actors can keep like playing the same roles over and over again. And actresses who are like 30, they're the ones who play their wives. And any of the you know great actresses who are in their 40s or 50s, it's like they get pushed to the side. So meanwhile, these guys can pretend they're like these like, you know, hip young gangsters. And Mick's like, my husband Mick was like, well, they're kind of like showing that they're like older in the tooth. I'm like, whatever. I'm like, I, I'm just tired of this, you know. Like Wait, using this, what you was know, Mick's go- defense? What was he that? was saying that, that they're it's, to- it's the, movie, the movie's insinuating that there has been. It's like they're too, they're too old. To be in this game. Anymore. Well, you could if you could if you're a husband, then you would have a has been wife. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I mean, that's not the. 
<laughs> yeah, the I get one, the point. A, that... a wife, a wife, a wife that was born when you were um, at least twenty, instead of like thirty <laughs> or forty. You know, so that's just that's just like a casting thing, and that's something a lot. That's of that Harvey Weinstein see. mentality that we began the show with. Exactly, that we began the show with this. Exactly. So I, that was just my little like, gripe. But like Brendan Fraser, I remember reading an article about him and he had struggles. And when the whole Me Too thing came out, we were talking about Harvey Weinstein. He actually was a victim of the Me Too. We rarely talk about male victims. And so I saw this uh, article about him and it was actually really, really sad. So I was kind of happy to see Brendan Fraser. And he usually doesn't play the bad guys. He usually plays like the nice guys or the mopey nice guy or the dopey nice guy. I think the first time I saw Brendan Fraser was he when he was an Encino man. In the 80s. I never saw the movie, mm. but I remember seeing the commercials. Do you remember that movie? It was really no. dumb. But, but anyway, so I thought it's a good movie. It's 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 definitely um it's definitely a mo- movie about organized crime. And it, it does talk, it touches upon, you know, the black gangsters and the tensions they had with the Italian gangsters and how they kind of intersect. And then they talk about, as Ben pointed out, um, corporate America and how it destroyed. Detroit. And my question to Mick was, I'm not from Michigan. Um, Mick is from Michigan. And, but he said he didn't know that much about Detroit. I was just wondering if it actually was filmed in Michigan. Filmed in Detroit. I do not know the answer to that. I could look that up. Uh, I do not know. Yeah, I was going to look it up and I totally forgot to, but that was my question. I thought maybe you knew. Yeah, it's it's whichever state gave him the most uh, tax credits for filming there was probably where the movie was filmed. Oh, Mick Uh, Mick just popped out of the room and he said it was filmed in Detroit. Okay. I guess he looked it up. All right. Mick Dumpke on call for fact checking. I like that. Um, so uh, anyway, I'll let you know this before we head out the door. Uh, my, I have to say, I'm going to tie it all together. Uh, my f- oldest daughter was born. Uh, that when she came back from the hospital it was the day we bought a VCR. You know, to watch because we knew that our life would change. We weren't going to be going to movies every weekend, so we got the VCR. The first movie we saw. When we, on our new VCR, it was hot as hell that summer, was Raising Arizona. And what, my wife and I, this, I, what this year is 1988, this? 1988. Why did you get a VCR so late? My parents got one in 82. Okay, because we always, we were like, thought we were like, we go out, we're going out, we're going to a movie, we're not going to sit at home, you know, that's not... And besides, I'm, you know me by now, Romana, I'm always like 10 years behind everybody else. I still am not in the Twitter. I'll be in well, the Twitter I, and you guys will have moved on to something else. You know, my parents, so, my parents would never, my parents would never let us get cable, but I can tell you why they got a VCR is because at the time you, that's the only way they could watch Indian movies on VHS. So it was a big market. Otherwise they'd never be able to see Indian movies. Like now you can watch Indian movies at the theater and. You know, there were, there was like one or two theaters that my parents, like one showed an Indian movie. So my parents, so the main motivation was Indian movies. Usually they're not ahead of their time. So we got it when it was like the whole VHS beta war. And so we yeah, had to see, I missed all that. Yeah, I, I missed so. absolutely all that. Anyway, so we, we got a first movie. So I was raising Arizona. It was 1988. It was the summer of 1980. It was really hot and we loved it. And I'm never sure if we loved it because we were just so happy that uh, we now knew we could watch movies. We're going to a phase of raising kids and we weren't going to go out anymore. So if we were just relieved. So this is my point. Say, I, I rented it from Netflix through the mail. I think Mick is the only other person in existence that yes. I know who gets the, those little red packages from Netflix. Uh, and so 
the next time you come on, I will have a movie review of Raising Arizona because we're going to watch it this week. And I'm actually looking forward. Is it as good as I remember? Sometimes it's fun to watch movies from 30 years ago because it, it, it's a test. Is the you have this thought in your head that this movie is the movie of all movies? Is it as good as you remember it is? Does it stand the test of time? So I will dutifully report. Have you seen Raising Arizona? Have you ever seen it? I was going to tell you I never saw it. But I, I remember when it came out. I And also, I do remember the summer of 88 because I was a teenager and I went to India that year and it was so hot. It yes. was so hot in India. It was like 130 degrees. I lost like tons of weight. And I remember <laughs> at that time, nobody had telephones. So my cousins and friends would write me letters and I'd get it three weeks later. And they're like, it's so hot in Chicago. And they told people not to water their grass because there was a... And so they said it was like super hot that summer. So they tell me about it. And I'm like, it's like double hot in India and I have no air conditioning. At least you guys are air conditioning. So that summer is like scorched in my mind. So when you said 88, I'm like, oh, that summer was like insanely hot. And I came back to hot so weather hot. too. Yes, so, um, so no, hot. I've heard Raising Arizona is really good. And, you know, speaking of Nicolas Cage, he's apparently in this movie called Pig. It's about this guy who is looking for his pig that is like a truffle hunting pig. And the pig would hunt truffles for like restaurants in you know to get truffles for menus that would go to these portland restaurants it sounds like really weird but everybody's raving about it i know nicholas cage is a really weird dude but um <laughs> everybody i know the movie sounds movie sounds insane but right now i'm just letting you know you're probably going to be reading about this soon if you have i, I did read about it uh in my beloved bright one home delivered today uh your good friend roper wrote about it and uh i probably um We'll go see it. I don't know if I'm going to bother to go see it in a movie theater, uh, but I will definitely rent it because he gave it four stars. He, uh, I'm a fan of Roper. I, I know some people put him down. They go, uh, you know, he he loves movies. And so I got no problem with a guy who loves movies. Uh, I love him too. So, um, yeah, so Richard Roper gave it four stars. I go, hmm. Okay, maybe I'll go see it. All right, Romana, uh, when we when you come back in two weeks, we'll be discussing Pig, Raising Arizona, and uh, Lord knows what else. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Stay safe and sound. Talk to you real soon, all right? Thanks. All right, that's Romana saying. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 